The population of the nation's veterans has steadily grown more diverse with respect to race and ethnic background over the decades, and there are more women than ever. Our next guest has done much to help the Veterans Health Administration ensure underserved and vulnerable veteran populations. She's the recipient of a recent VA Secretary's Research Award, and not the first time. And she's also a staff physician at the Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System, Dr. Donna Washington. Dr. Washington, good to have you with us. Thanks. Great to be here. And I want to get a definition of terms. Underserved, because the VA is everywhere and does all this extensive reach out to veterans wherever they might be. So how does underserved come to this particular group of, of health care seekers? So I'm glad you asked that question. When you think about the term underserved in other contexts, meaning sort of the broader community outside of the VA, it often relates to lack of access to services. But within VA, financial barriers to healthcare access are minimized. Eligible veterans can use the VA without paying an insurance premium, for example. But despite that, there are groups both within as well as outside the VA that have historically experienced greater barriers to achieving the highest level of patient experiences, healthcare quality, and health outcomes. These are the groups that are underserved, in a sense, outside the VA. Within the VA, it's probably more accurate to think of them, of, of these groups that are defined by race and ethnicity, by sex, by socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, mental health disability, to name a few of the veteran population characteristics we've examined, it's probably more correct to think of these groups as those that have been historically at risk. Sure. You have done a lot of research in this area. And what are some of the conclusions you found as to why this condition exists? That answer requires an understanding of social determinants of health. When we look at the influences on health, health uh, for groups served by the VA, health for groups in the community, then we find that medical care, though important, really just addresses a fraction of the health outcomes. Social determinants of health, meaning the conditions in which people are born, grow, work, live, and age, and the wider set of forces and systems shaping the conditions of daily life have a much, much greater impact on health outcomes. And so uh, despite having limited financial barriers to care, these social conditions are pervasive, and so they influence health outcomes of veterans served by VA. And does this usually occur on racial lines, or is it more a matter of poverty? For example, a high percentage of the veteran suicides are white males, but they're in rural areas where there's not a lot of support. Maybe in urban areas, would black veterans maybe have... I don't know, there are certain public health conditions that affect black populations more than others, and they would be part of that milieu. Is that kind of what you're saying? So I'm saying it's not an either-or situation, that when we look across different veteran characteristics, we see that it's affected by some groups based on socioeconomic status, as you mentioned. So you mentioned, for example, uh, white males in rural areas. Rurality or geography is important. And um, when you think about uh, access to healthcare services, for example, then the existing community infrastructure may be less in rural areas. And so that's a factor. Absolutely, race and ethnicity, as well as sex within VA, are important characteristics. And so 
these are all important characteristics. One of the major ways to evaluate and monitor health inequities or variations in health and healthcare within the VA that the Office of Health Equity has championed is periodically publishing a National Veteran Health Equity Report. This provides the VA with information similar to the that of the larger U.S. The U.S. as a whole sure. has a national quality and health disparities report that's put out each year. When you look at the National Veteran Health Equity Report, you see that there are sections not only addressing socioeconomic status and race and ethnicity, but also rurality, age, and other factors, sex and other factors that define the different groups that are potentially at risk. We're speaking with Dr. Donna Washington. She's a staff physician at VA's Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System and a recipient of a recent Secretary's Award for Research. And so, therefore, the implication, and you tell me, is that VA's traditional one-size-fits-all approach to delivering healthcare maybe needs to be tailored to different populations, a population health approach. The VA has tailored it. I've seen in my research some good results because of that. So back when I started looking at differences in quality of care and outcomes within VA by race and ethnicity, what I identified early on is that there were differences, disparities, meaning meaningful decrements by race and ethnicity for both processes of care, meaning what's done. So for example, does someone with diabetes have an eye exam or have a foot exam when it's due? We found early on differences in both processes of care as well as outcomes, meaning is there blood pressure controlled? Is there diabetes controlled? And so forth. And with the first quality transformation, the VA was able to systematically really sort of right-size care so that there were systematic processes in care to assure that all veterans got the same recommended care. And what we found is that the disparities in processes of care closed. They narrowed or they closed. However, the disparities in some of these clinical outcomes that really are influenced both by healthcare as well as by social determinants of health persisted over time. More recently, some of the different interventions and uh, clinical innovations that have been put into place address tailoring some of those social determinants of health. Let me give you an example. Yeah, I was going to say, let's give us an example here. Sure. The COVID-19 pandemic is probably fresh on all of our minds. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, then VA, as well as other health systems, was able to pivot to delivering telehealth services, meaning video, as well as other ways of, of delivering care. But there's something called a digital divide. Not everyone lives in a community with good broadband access. Not everyone could afford a laptop, a smartphone, or other ways of connecting. And so the VA implemented a digital divide program in which they distributed broadband-enabled tablets or phones to, to veterans at risk. So this is an example of tailoring care to address some of the social determinants of health so that all groups have the best 
possible chance of achieving optimal health outcomes. Right. And I know VA went through a lot of uh, effort to make sure that women veterans were treated in a way that could affect outcomes. I recall one story not too long ago, actually, within the last 10 years or so, where simply turning examination chairs around so that they didn't face the doorway to the hall was a way in which more women felt comfortable coming into VA for an examination. Absolutely. The example that you just cited is part of looking at the physical plant. So when you think about the environment of care, their um, physical aspects of it, their cultural aspects of it, their staff sensitivity, and the VA, based on data, based on studies that I've led as well as others, identified where the areas were that needed improving and then systematically set out to create an environment of care and a culture of care that was welcoming and appropriate for women. And what about the use of peer groups to encourage people to seek the care that they can get? Because different groups, different populations have different places they tend to hang around. I know the Census Bureau, for example, uses very highly individualized channels of communication among different ethnic groups in a way to encourage people to respond to the census poll every 10 years, that kind of thing. Does does VA do that at all? Or have you found that to be something effective? Two questions embedded in there. First of all, peer groups are really crucially important. One example of the way that that's used in VA are the peer support counselors. So peer groups have been studied, peer counselors. It's really the health system equivalent to community health workers as a way to help veterans navigate the system, help veterans talk to someone who could relate to their experiences because they've been through it, but also successfully identified ways to address some of the barriers faced. And so peer groups have been used. They have been studied. There are studies that have demonstrated their effectiveness. And I mentioned earlier social determinants of health. One of the important social determinants is social support. And that's really where peer groups can come in as a uh, way to address that isolation and and that need to have greater social support. And what's next on your research agenda? You personally? I probably started with the easy hanging fruit. When you look at health equity research and health disparities, it goes in generations. And much of my research sort of followed that path, initially identifying where disparities were so that we would know what areas to look at to intervene. Next, doing careful work to understand what some of those underlying mechanisms are, and then addressing the easier things, such as processes of care, looking further at social determinants of health, doing work to tailor care or to identify what forms of tailor care would help to address some of the social determinants of health. But now we're left with sort of the thornier, more difficult to address issues. And that's the underlying causes that we can't see. So some of these so-called invisible contributors to disparities in health and health care by race, ethnicity, by sex, and by other population characteristics include some of the biases that are built into institutions. Structural barriers to care, it's been termed different things, structural racism even. And let me just give you a couple of examples that has come to the attention of health systems over the last couple of years. With COVID-19, 
then it's very it was very important, for example, to monitor oxygen levels. The healthcare systems use something called pulse oximeters, which measures the oxygen saturation in someone's mm-hmm. blood. It's it's really a marker, for example, among those who were infected with COVID nineteen, right. how they might be impacted. And unbeknownst to many people, when pulse oximeter machines were developed, they were standardized on people who did not have dark skin. And so you could imagine that this is something that's invisible to those of us who use these machines, the fact that they actually had different and potentially erroneous results in, let's say, people with dark skin. I didn't realize skin color could affect oxygen levels in the blood. Well, it doesn't affect oxygen levels. What it affects is the um, ability of the machines to detect low levels. And so I see, because it's um, a non-invasive type of thing. So it's looking at you from the surface, in other words, the machine. It's a non-invasive thing. Or, I mean, there are other things, there are algorithms, for example, how we measure kidney function. And so these are things that the best intentioned people don't know that the machines may not be functioning the same way in different groups of people based on different characteristics. And so those are sort of the invisible contributors to differences in the ability to detect health issues and and health outcomes. So addressing these structural barriers to care is really one of the next frontiers to sort of unraveling what some of the causes of these persistent disparities are. And amidst all this research, you are a staff physician in a VA center. Do you ever get the time to lay a stethoscope on a chest once in a while too? Absolutely. It's really important to me as a primary care provider that I maintain a continuity Continuity practice. So I continue to deliver care as a designated women's health provider in the women's clinic, as well as in the general primary care clinic. This is so important to me for so many reasons. One, it's just so rewarding to be able to impact the health and help individual veterans achieve their health goals. Research takes a long time, whereas the feedback I get from patients each and every week is immediate. So that's number one, but also the patient's that I've had the privilege of caring for have inspired me and inspired some of the questions that I've asked. When, when I arrived at the VA, I actually was not a women's health researcher, but delivering care in the women's health clinic really helped me to understand what some of the issues were that my patients were struggling with. And that led me to design some of the research studies that then led to changes in healthcare and improvement in healthcare. Great story. Dr. Donna Washington is a staff physician at VA's Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System and recipient of a recent Secretary's Award for research. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me here. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking 
earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves 
uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. 
you want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.